Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a climate scientist will break down climate change basics and identify the main culprits. Spoiler, it has something to do with me, you, and CO2. And then, Brooklyn weddings are trending. We'll hear how to plan for yours, or mine. We'll see. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, here in the studio with my producer, Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. Hi, Ross. How are you doing? Today we're going heavy on climate change, not just because we had one day of spring yesterday and now it's summer. No, <laughs> because we've got a great guest coming on, a Brooklyn-based climate scientist who really breaks down what we're facing in plain terms. Also, there's a climate conference happening right now in Bonn, Germany, which nobody seems to be talking about, but it's to talk about the Paris Agreements, the agreements that we've decided to back out of. So, Ashley, you know, I looked over the participants of this uh, conference. 193 countries are attending, uh, sending large delegations, including one country that's actually sending their head of vulnerabilities. Oh, is that us? Is it Oprah? <laughs> it's not us, no, and it's, it's not, not Oprah. Oprah. But if it was us, it should be Oprah, right? Right, right. Uh, another one is sending their director of the Adaptation Mechanism for Living Well. Oh, wow. I don't know who that would be. We don't have one of those, we I don't think, in America. We definitely don't have one of those. <laughs> and, you know, China is sending uh, their climate change department. We're sending our Office of Global Change. Wow. Is that like somebody who just shows up and holds a boombox over their head that plays Heal the World by Michael Jackson? Or? <laughs> that would be good. That would actually attract a crowd, I'm sure. Then yeah. people would be talking about this conference. True, true. Um, but they're not talking about the conference. Nobody but, is. you know, I should say, in <laughs> fairness, the name Office of Global Change predates Trump. It wasn't a Trumpian kind of thing. Right. But it is the office whose website has been altered after his inauguration. They took out all the references to the U.S. playing a leading role mm -hmm. in combating climate change. Well, at least they're being honest, you know, about something. That is true. <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk to a researcher at both Columbia and NASA about what we know and what we don't. Also, it's wedding season. I'm getting married. I'm getting married. Okay, not in Brooklyn, but if you are, or if you want to, you won't want to miss my conversation with editorial director of World Bride Magazine and plus-size model Lyris Cross. Stay tuned. We live on an island, and according to some recent studies, our island will experience major flooding every five years. And that's just from hurricanes and tropical storms, to say nothing of sea level rise. For those who remember Sandy are and about to live through the apocalypse, this is not welcome news. We're just out of the flood zone here. But if you live a few blocks north or a few blocks south, then you may want to scout an evacuation plan. That's one action you can take to protect yourself. But what about more proactive measures to protect, I don't know, the planet? Our next guest doesn't claim to have any magical solutions, but her work helps to lay a foundation upon which decisions and policies to combat climate change can be made. She's a Brooklyn-based research scientist at Columbia and NASA. Welcome Dr. Kate Marvel to 112BK. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. It, this is such an, it seems like an everlasting and endlessly complicated conversation. But, you know, we're, we're trying to, I think, narrow it down a little bit and educate people from the perspective of being in Brooklyn and also just 
how to protect ourselves and make sure that we are protecting the planet for generations to come. So we're changing the climate with our activity, right? As humans, we're changing it. There's no debate on that, right? No. I mean, we are so sure about this. We are so sure that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. um, we're so sure that we are emitting a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And we are so sure that that is warming the planet. See, and that's clear to me, okay? Like, at that point, that's foundational knowledge, I think. Now, I've read where it says there's a 97 percent consensus among scientists that climate change exists. But who are the 3 percent who don't believe it exists? You know, like, I don't know them personally. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of not that exciting to get bogged into bay. Is it 97 or 98 or 99? You know, it's, right. it's most people. And if you know scientists, like, we are trained to argue with each other. Mm -hmm. We are trained to, like, you can't even, like, order a pizza with scientists, right? <laughs> like, it is so annoying. And so to get the vast, vast majority of scientists to agree on anything is mm -hmm. such a huge step. How do you, with all of your expertise and all of your information, how do you have conversations with people who are climate change deniers? I think that's such a good question, and I wish I, wish I knew the answer. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, as a scientist, we are trained to just bombard people with facts. And right. people are like, I'm not sure about this. And you're like, have some more equations. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> that, that doesn't change anybody's mind. Right. Um, and increasingly, I'm realizing, like, it's not about facts. Mm -hmm. It's about stories. It's about how we see ourselves. Mm. And so you are never going to change anybody's mind with facts. And mm. you are certainly not going to change their mind by calling them an idiot. Yeah. Um, something that I do know is that we tend to focus a lot on sort of really hardcore committed climate deniers. Mm -hmm. And that is that is a tiny minority of the population. Right. Um, the vast majority of people just don't care one way or other. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's fair because it's really hard to take something that's this global, that's this slow moving, that just kind of mm -hmm. if you really think about it, it feels like just apocalyptic. You know, nobody right. wants to think about that and everybody's got problems in their lives. Right. And so I think, you know, we need to work on ways to to tell stories, to make this mm -hmm. personal. Um, and, you know, that's that's a conversation. That's not a scientist a from on high lecture. Right. right? Nobody <laughs> wants to hear that. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And it makes me wonder, you know, because I feel like as a kid, there were so many, and I'm 31, I remember so many cartoons, so many TV specials. So all of these things about the planet and about recycling and about respecting the planet and I don't know if it's because I don't watch a lot of kids' shows anymore, which is very recent, by the way. But I don't know if it's because of that, but I don't really see that being part of the public narrative as much as it was when I was young. Did we lose the plot, or did we just lose interest? I don't know. I mean, I feel like there is, when you think of an environmentalist, right, like you mm -hmm. think of a specific type of person with specific interests and, mm -hmm. you know, with specific values. And I think we should all be environmentalists because we all right. live here. You know yes. what I mean? Um, and, and so we need to kind of broaden the, the base of people who care about the planet to be outside just a certain type of person. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think... 
we kind of saturated with appealing right. to that particular type of person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those people are freaked out and they are yeah. doing really good work. Right. Um, but now we need to start talking to everybody else, people who feel left out of that conversation. Right. Which seems to be a lot of people who it feel seems to be left tons out of, people. of that. Yeah. Who yeah. feel at least like there's no place for them to ask the questions that they have. Definitely. Which is really interesting to me. And I know that this is something that we need to figure out and we need to figure out sooner rather than later is how to communicate these stories and how to get people to understand how climate change actually does and will affect them. But do we do that by talking about what the world could be like when, like, we do lose the plot and everything goes wrong? <laughs> like, is that the way we do Like, what are even the consequences of us taking too long to, you know, get these conversations to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard because you don't want to freak people out because right. then, like, your brain just shuts down if you're like, well, it's the apocalypse, like, whatever. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, it is a really big deal. You know, some mm -hmm. of the computer models that I work on are projecting um, a warming of, you know, five degrees by the end of the century. And that doesn't wow. sound like a lot. Um, this is degrees Celsius. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like a lot, but to put that in context, the difference between now and the last ice age was four and a half degrees. Wow. Right? So, like, this is really serious. Yeah. Um, and that can have local consequences. Mm -hmm. So, warm air holds more water vapor. And so, when it rains, like, we're going to see these, like, giant downpours, like we mm -hmm. saw in Houston during Absolutely. Hurricane Harvey. Um, warmer sea surface temperatures, that's hurricane food. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we might see more intense hurricanes. You know, when there's a storm surge, the sea level is going to be higher, mm -hmm. and we could see, you know, more frequent storm surges that go farther inland. Right. Um, and so, you know, there are all of these consequences, and I think we can't sugarcoat it, we can't soft pedal it, but that nightmare future is not inevitable. Right. You know, we don't have to go there, and we still have choices. What choices can we be making right now? You know, I, I mean, to be perfectly honest, just as a person like me in Brooklyn, I live in an apartment. I take the subway every day. You know, are there things that I could be thinking about? Because I was raised in Indiana and, uh -huh. you know, doing your recycling and your composting and all of those things in Indiana, much, much different than how you would do those <laughs> things here, you know, in Brooklyn. So what can I do? What can people like me be doing? Um, I heard a quote once from an energy researcher named David McKay, and his, his quote was, um, if we all do a little, then mm -hmm. only a little will get done. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what's really daunting about climate change is we're talking about things that have to happen on a real systemic level. Right. Um, and so I think the thing that you can do is probably something that you are already doing, which mm -hmm. is get politically engaged, mm -hmm. take this seriously, add climate change to the menu of things that you care about. Right. When you are talking to your elected officials, say, right. I care about this issue, this issue, this issue, and climate change, mm -hmm. and just interweave it with everything that you do. When we were, just a, a couple questions ago, um, you said that you don't want to scare the crap out of people uh -huh. when you talk to them about this stuff. And how do you do that? Because I find, you know, as someone who writes things that are, you know, incredibly emotional and things like that, I often just want to share a story with people and they end up crying anyway. Uh -huh. So do you have the experience of like actively trying not to freak people out, but finding that 
maybe sometimes I get freaked out anyway? I mean, yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I feel like that's why it's really important that, like, scientists don't, like, sit in their little science building and never mm -hmm. talk to anybody else. Like, right. you know, like you point out, like, writers do this all the time. Mm -hmm. Artists do this all the time. You know, there are these huge communities of people who talk to each other professionally and who right. think about how to communicate big ideas, mm -hmm. and they're really good at it. And I think we can't just sit in our science departments. We have right. to talk to people like that. We have to leverage their experience. And we have to listen when they tell us, like, hey, mm -hmm. what you're doing is not working. No facts, no figures. Stop showing that graph. Right. Is that what's screwy with the messaging right now? Is that they're just, we're showing graphs and talking to people about arbitrary numbers that they can't follow? It, it, like, what is the problem with the messaging? Is it too academic? Or is it just not, I don't know, like, is it not creatively conveyed well enough? I don't know. I think that's kind of the question that a lot of people are thinking about. And I really wish I had the answers. Um, I think there are well-funded and well-organized people who have a vested interest in obscuring that message. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think it's just, it's hard to talk about science because it's something that's very, very technical, um, involves a whole bunch of different branches of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And when you're in it, you know, you're just focusing on one problem. Right. And, you know, you're like writing computer code and you're dealing with equations. And then mm -hmm. it's hard to sort of drag yourself out of that and be like, oh, I have to talk to normal people. Right. You know, like, yes. what, what do they care about? Um, and, you know, I think it's just a confluence of all of these different things. But I think we're getting better at it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we need a diversity of voices speaking out. We can't just have, like, one guy speaking for everybody, because right. that's not going to work. No, um, you know, and I think a community that's not going to listen to me um, may listen to somebody who comes from their background and speaks mm -hmm. their language. And I think we really have a responsibility to make sure that the scientific workforce looks like America. Yeah. And we're falling mm. down on that. Um, and I, I think that that's not just a shame. I think that's kind of an existential threat. Oh, wow. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. No, and I, and I mean, like, I... I say that because I feel you, but I don't know that I've heard a scientist articulate that so well before. I, like, personally, I hadn't heard it. Which, you know, and, and just moving on, like, just a, a tiny, tiny bit. And this is a weird question to ask a scientist for obvious reasons. <laughs> but do you ever worry that you're wrong? Do you ever look at these projections and these models and worry we missed this or we didn't pay attention to this and maybe, like, we haven't gotten this right. Maybe it's better than we think or maybe it's much worse than we think. Oh, my gosh, all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all the time. And I think, you know, that's kind of the, the most important and kind of most beautiful thing about science is mm -hmm. it allows you to be wrong. Um, it allows you to say, I got those numbers right, or I got those numbers wrong, or I, I forgot to include this process. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really difficult when it's something that's embedded in all of the layers of political and social meaning that mm -hmm. climate change is. Um, I am I'm more confident than I am in anything that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas right. and we're emitting it and it's warming the planet. Um, right. As for what's going to happen, we there are things that we know we don't know, and then there's things that like maybe we don't know that we don't know. Right. Um, and some of the things that were uncertain mm -hmm. 
seem to be converging in kind of the bad direction, um, and, and that's really worrying to me. So, for example, climate models don't do a really good job with sea ice melting, right. because you know the sea ice has melted in the past. You know we've had ice ages, we've come out of ice ages, mm -hmm. but never this quickly. Mm. So we have no understanding of what happens when, when sea, ice sea ice melts, melts so quickly, this fast, um, and it seems like a lot of the worst case scenarios. You know this glacier melts, like mm -hmm. Antarctica breaks up. You know, those don't seem as outlandish as maybe we thought they were. Mm. Um, so I feel like a lot of times people will say, well, there's still a lot of uncertainty surrounding climate change. And that shouldn't be comforting. Yeah. You know, that should, that should be the scariest thing. Because even right. if we knew that it would be bad, but we were certain, we could say, okay, you know, your house in 2050 mm -hmm. on May 2nd at 8 o'clock in the morning will be flooded. Right. You know, then you can make plans accordingly if you Absolutely. have that certainty. Right. But it's the fact that we don't have that certainty. We know that kind of something bad is coming, but yeah. how bad is it going to be? Like that, that's really scary to me. And I can understand how it could maybe keep you up at night a oh, little totally. bit. <laughs> but what right now, you know, in a time that seems really challenging um, for people who do believe in climate change and who want to do something about it, what's giving you hope? A lot of things are giving me hope, actually. Um, yeah. You know, the first is that we know exactly what's causing this from a physical perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, it's carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Right. So all we have to do is not put them there. Um, right. And, you know, then we can fix it. I'm not minimizing the sort of political and social and economic transformations that would be necessary to do that. But, like, right. we do have a really clear understanding of what we need to do. Right. Um, we have technology that we need. We have mm -hmm. solar panels. We have wind turbines. Um, we have ways to generate energy without emitting carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And we could be utilizing a lot more of those than we are. Um, and I, I think a lot of those lines are kind of moving in the right direction. Yeah. Um, I think there was this conventional wisdom that, you know, women have to live with sexual harassment and mm -hmm. kids have to be shot in school. And now there's these movements that I don't understand that are saying, you know, no, like, we're going to we're going to challenge that conventional wisdom. Right. And I don't understand where those came from. Um, right. You know, I'm just a passive observer, like watching with my jaw dropped. Um, right. And I think like that that gives me hope. Like I don't know when the you know, the watershed moment's gonna be, but I think there will be one. That's fantastic. Dr. Marvel, thank you so much for being here and for thank having me. Thank you so much for having me. So nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you as well. Ever go to Brooklyn Bridge Park and not see a tux and gown clad couple emerging from a limo, photographer on their tail looking for that perfect vista of the Manhattan skyline to immortalize their nuptial moment? But Brooklyn's more than a photo op these days. Can we call it a destination wedding? Well, not if you live here. But it's become a hot spot in which to wed no matter where you call home. And I had a conversation recently with the editorial director of World Bride magazine, Meredith Leon McCormick, about their article on Brooklyn weddings and with the plus-size model on the cover, Lyris Cross. Here it is. Thank both of you so much for being here today. But Meredith, I have to ask you right off the bat, we're about to enter peak wedding season. And I know that because I'm getting married this year. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. But can you tell me, what are just some of the things that are really on trend right now for weddings? As far as dresses or flowers mm. or everything. Let's start with dresses. Dresses, I see lace seems to be coming back. Mm -hmm. But, like, 
we just celebrated and honored um, Sala, who just passed away, mm -hmm. and all the classic dresses that she did, simple sheath, fitting, mm -hmm. dresses off the shoulder, girly, is in, but yet when I went to see Danny Maseraki, mm -hmm. you know, an Israeli designer, he played it up with lace and sexiness, modern oh. woman, and all those good things. But I think each designer designed for the woman that they envision, mm -hmm. you know? So I am not the trendy person. I don't believe in just doing things for trends. I believe mm -hmm. that you want to look at your pictures, five, ten, 20 years from now, and I say, what was I thinking? <laughs> timeless. Yeah, yes, timeless. you want timeless. That's the you want to look at the pictures exactly. and say, oh, I totally get what Absolutely. this person is thinking, and maybe even that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Is that why you decided to have Lyris on the cover? Um, I decided to have Lyris on the cover because she's gorgeous. So it was a no-brainer. <laughs> that's She's like a, we yes. wanted a beautiful. We want beautiful people. Not that right. everybody's not not beautiful, mm -hmm. but we wanted somebody beautiful. But I noticed in my years in the fashion industry for the past 25 years, mm -hmm. the women that were always on the cover were under a size four. Mm -hmm. You know, and that wasn't the reality of the world. So it's beautiful to sell all this fantasy and you know what everybody should aspire to be, mm -hmm. but it caused a whole other problem because the other woman that's short, that's black, that's Asian, that's Latina, that's Arab, oh, yeah. that Muslim, you know, that's curvy, they felt left out. Absolutely. So how do you, how do you, you know, say that, yes, we are, we are inviting you, because everybody's talking about this whole, you know, um, diversity and inclusion, mm -hmm. but does she, does she feel invited? Right. Am I showing her that she's invited by having an image of her right. there? So it's there's a difference between being fetishized, being mm -hmm. used mm -hmm. for you know whatever makes me othered, versus somebody actually seeing that what makes me different also makes me beautiful and wanting to just connect a reader with that beauty. Absolutely. And that's why Lyris is on no the cover, so that people who connect with her beauty, mm -hmm. which I can't imagine anybody doesn't, right. uh, would be able to appreciate it even more. Lyris, can you talk to me a little bit about your time on Project Runway? Oh my gosh, Project Runway was just a dream for me, a yeah. dream come true. I have, for many years, just longed to see plus-size women, uh, plus-size models mm -hmm. in particular, on the runway, and it not just be one plus-size model and right. everyone else's straight sides, but, and also more uh, women of color. Yes. So to be able to have this moment on Project Runway where you had black, you had white, you had Asian, you had, you know, buzz cut short hair, you had long wavy hair, you had wigs, you had, you know, ponytails, all types right. of stuff. You had freckles. Yes. They had such a beautiful array of just diversity mm -hmm. uh, in size, in color, and just in look. And in body shape, actually, too. Yes. You see people reacting to that season mm -hmm. of Project Runway, reacting to seeing more women of color and plus-size women of color mm -hmm. in runway on runways. You know, designers like Christian Siriano, mm -hmm. who is designing my wedding dress and who's really? also, yes, oh, wow. I'm very you lucky. You got a winner. I'm very lucky. <laughs> but, you know, but having that happen and knowing that, you know, these people are so excited yes. to have representation Absolutely. and to have their body 
bodies be celebrated. How yes. did people react to the cover with Lyris on it? Oh my God. We did a teaser because we dropped it at midnight. I think by the time she posted it on her page, <laughs> we already had like 10,000 people that had seen it. We had other plus size curvy girls emailing us and saying, oh my God, this is gorgeous. How oh, can wow. I, you know, this is amazing. Thank you for showing this. I had other plus size curvy girls calling me and said, I would like to be featured in your magazine. Oh, I wow. want to, you know, thank you for doing this. It does something to your self-esteem when mm -hmm. you see yourself Absolutely. in it, you know. Talk to me about the Get Married Brooklyn initiative. So this was something that we came up with, World Bride Magazine, mm -hmm. some years ago, and we kept trying to say, you know, Brooklyn is so it, you know. Yes. We knew it was it 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Everybody <laughs> else is just catching up to the coolness of what Brooklyn was. Very right. much so. Just, they're just catching up now. It's so we decided, hey, we, we spend most of our time going all over the world, mm -hmm. discovering great destinations to get married. But the whole world lives in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Each, Brooklyn is broken up into zip codes, but the mm -hmm. zip codes are communities. They represent the Arabic community, the Asian community, the mm -hmm. African-American community, the Caribbean community, mm -hmm. the, you know, <laughs> Jewish community. It's all here. So Absolutely. we decided that we were going to create this initiative. It's called Get Married in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and it's to promote Brooklyn as a destination wedding location. And Lyris, you're a Brooklyn girl. I'm in, you know, what they call East Williamsburg. Yeah. Now. <laughs> you know, it's fancy, which is Bushwick. Yeah, it's Bushwick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all good. Um, yeah. But I've been there for years. Could for you years. see yourself getting married in beautiful Brooklyn? I could. I just have to find the right venue. Yes. And uh, thankfully, I have a good guy <laughs> yes. if I decide to do that. Yes. I think Brooklyn is very hip, but it's always had a certain culture and feel mm -hmm. and now the world is becoming hip to it oh absolutely yes and what would you say to people who are intimidated about cost you know is there a way to be a creative bride on a budget right here in absolutely Pittsburgh? traditionally i think everybody always thought about a uh, hotel ballroom right. you know and that can be costly because of everything involved that's per person you yes. know whatever else but now there's outdoor weddings prospect park everybody thinks of central park but we have prospect park we have the the boathouse you know so right. we we have the carousel. We have, you know, restaurants, just local restaurants mm -hmm. in Brooklyn that are open to having smaller weddings. So, and I don't think people are so about this, I need to have 200 or 350 people yeah. at their wedding. I think people want experiences and they want intimacy. You know, so they want an intimate experience, and I want to share my life with you. And I want to say hello to all my friends that are attending. Right. So I think that's really what it is, and Brooklyn offers such a huge option. You know, I don't know why anybody hasn't reported about beach weddings, because we have all these beaches. You know, Coney Island, we've yeah. took great shots of it, you know. So when's the next issue? The next issue is about to launch on Friday, and it is inspired by Prince Harry and mm -hmm. Meghan Markle wedding. Yes. So, um, honestly, the whole thing, after Lyris's issue came out, mm -hmm. we had a little Meghan Markle action happening, talking about her jewelry and everything else, but oh, then yeah. we turned around and we... Um, did it in inspired our men's issue inspired mm -hmm. by Prince Harry and his upcoming wow. nuptials that has changed how millennials and the guards of old see multicultural. 
because that's oh, the good. ultimate multicultural right. diverse wedding. Yes, it absolutely happening. is, mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for talking to us about this. Thank I can't you. wait to pick up that royal issue. I already got the issue, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But, you it was know, the best, her best-selling uh, issue as best, well. Best-selling The best-selling. The that is most fantastic. downloaded. Not surprising with Lyris on the cover, oh, to she's be stunning. perfectly honest. And with the work that you've been doing, thank people you. believe in the brand. People they know do. that it's a good magazine. And, yeah. you know, a bride like me wants to see herself on yes. the pages of these magazines. So thank you so much, both of you, for being here. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. That's the show today. Thanks for joining us. I hope you can tune in tomorrow when we talk to the producers of the new Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, which premieres in NYC this coming weekend. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barty, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.